www.thepeopleshow.com. Well, good morning, everyone. And I'd like to profoundly apologize for that amazing chord that I played uh, introing that song this morning. Sometimes your fingers just don't do what your brain tells them to. So, anyway... Uh, Thanks for being with us this morning. We're in a study uh, working our way through Romans, Um, and so if you want to grab your Bibles or your Bible apps, we're still in Romans chapter 1, week 3, but we're going to finish up chapter 1 today, so so that's great. We're making some progress. Um, As we start out this morning, I want to share a quote with you, and this this quote is from uh, a man named Wayne Grudem. He is a a theologian, writer, writer. and uh, uh, has uh, done extensive work in different, uh, different uh, textbooks. Like, I, I remember using a textbook from Wayne Grudem when I was in college, which is a long time ago. Uh, but he also is uh, someone who has worked on kind of the editing, the general editor of the uh, English Standard Version Bible, which is the one that we use here. So, uh, interesting side note. And he's from Chippewa Falls. So, you know, in case you want that connection. But anyway, so giving you a little bit of, uh, here's Wayne Grudem, here's a quote that I came across from him this week that's relevant, I think, to where we're heading today. He says, almost all Christians, young and old, prefer peace to war. In particular, most of us don't like fighting a culture war, but sometimes if we're to be faithful to biblical teaching, we have no choice. We do have a choice of tactics, and at times Christians have chosen poorly. But we still should not cry peace, peace, when there is no peace. I think most of us could probably resonate with at least certain aspects of that quote. Uh, There might be a few of us who are looking to take on the world, uh, do battle with the world, picking a fight with the world. But most of us, for most of us, I would say we're, we're just not. And yet, no matter how hard we try to avoid that, the reality is that following Jesus is going to inevitably lead to clashes with the ways of the world. Uh, The things that we're going to talk about over the next couple weeks are likely going to challenge us in this regard. right? Because after Paul gives his his main idea, his kind of thesis statement of what this letter and, and his thought is really all about, he kind of backs that up then by showing how and why a couple of different trains of thought, four particular trains of thought, are like flawed uh, religious belief systems. They don't hold up. Each of these ideas are, are wrong and flawed because their idea of righteousness falls way short of God's standard of righteousness. And even if they contain some element of faith within them, that faith is placed in the wrong thing. It can't accomplish making us right with God. Now we're going to be looking at these uh, four different things over the next couple of weeks as they cover a couple of different chapters here. Um, And um, look, oftentimes I think that flawed thinking is going to mirror how people we know or society as a whole tends to view things. Right? It sets us up as some thoughts and perspectives that are going to be at odds and clash with the world. And that's probably going to be a challenge as well because sometimes that incorrect thinking or that incorrect perspective will seep into our own minds as well. So, the first way of thinking 
that we're going to be looking at today and the kind of the title of today's message is the problem with pagan thinking. The problem with pagan thinking. And he's going to cover this in verses 21 and following, specifically 21 through 27 and a little bit after that. But we have a little bit of ground to cover before we get to it. Okay? So we're going to go back to uh, verse 16, which is again Paul's kind of main idea, his kind of his thesis for this whole uh, letter and this uh, perspective that he's writing about. In Romans, 16, Romans 1, 16 and 17, he says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Uh, this is the verses we talked about last week. If you missed that, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it because it's pretty foundational for just about everything Paul's going to get to in this letter. But he says there's a standard of right and wrong that we somehow have to meet in order for us to be right in God's eyes. God revealed that standard to us in the person of Jesus. It's perfection. <laughs> pretty high standard. But not only has he revealed that standard in the person of Jesus, he's also revealed the means for attaining righteousness for ourselves so that we're in right standing with him. And that is through faith in Jesus. Right? So he's revealed not only the standard, which is Jesus, but he's revealed the means of attaining the righteousness we need. And Paul's, I, I think, main idea we summed up like this last week, salvation comes through righteousness, but righteousness comes through faith. Salvation comes through righteousness, meeting up with the righteous standards of God. But righteousness, having that, attaining that, only comes through faith, and specifically faith in Jesus. That's how we're declared righteous. That's how we're seen as right in God's eyes, and that's how we're saved from God's wrath, Paul says. Right? And that's what good news the gospel is all about. And he, he said the gospel is the power of God for salvation to those who believe it. Salvation from what? From God's wrath. Now Paul is going to elaborate that on that in the next couple of verses. So Romans 1.18. Moving on from last week, this is kind of where we pick things up. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Now, the word wrath, it literally means settled anger. Right? Settled anger. God's anger will be settled against unrighteousness and ungodliness. Now, the question is, for each one of us, how do we want that anger to be settled? That's the question each person needs to consider. And there are two options. Option A, it could be settled with the forgiveness that is offered to us through faith in Jesus. Right when we receive that. So any wrath or anger that God would have poured out on me because of my sin and my unrighteousness, He settled that already because He's poured it out on Jesus and my faith and trust in Him has declared me right. Same for you and anyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus. 
I think that's important to remember when we talk about God's wrath. It can be settled in that way. That's option A. He's made a way out of facing any kind of punishment, and it's available to anyone. Option B is that that anger is settled through punishment. Right? And that's what Paul's referring to here. He says he's revealing his wrath against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And he goes on to say that this ungodliness and unrighteousness also hinders and suppresses the truth. It hinders and suppresses the truth. Right? Uh, some people do that knowingly. Right? Like they actually know what's right and true or what God's Word says. They're conscious of it, but because their motives are wicked and ungodly, they don't hold to it. Right? They suppress and hinder the truth. And others may actually be doing it unknowingly. Like they still don't realize they're in the wrong. But still, by believing and perpetuating these false beliefs, they too are hindering and suppressing the truth. And in verse 19, Paul says, look, either way they should know better because for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Okay? And now this is where he starts to move into the, the problem with pagan thinking. He doesn't put a title or label on it as he talks about this, but he describes it pretty clearly. So Romans uh, 1, 19 through 25. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their, heart, their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Okay, now when we talk about pagan thinking or the term pagan, it really is in a lot of ways kind of a catch-all word. Um, you know, in the time of Paul, it would have referred to like non-Christian or pre-Christian religious practices that fell outside of the, the mainstream of other world religions. However, the most notable feature, the thing that that kind of made it uh, unique in that way was it contained an aspect of worshiping nature, right? Like nature worship. Paganism at the time wasn't some organized religion. There was no set creed or doctrine or rituals or authority structure. Um, (laughs) I wrote this. It was very organic and grassroots. And after I wrote that, I realized that was a bit ironic to call something that had to do with nature worship. (laughs) Organic and grassroots. (laughs) Right? But the aspects of pagan thinking also permeated the mainstream culture and, and religions as well. It wasn't just exclusive to that, so it's a bigger picture. The Roman culture was very polytheistic, meaning they, they worshiped many different false gods. Some people, or some would attribute divine status to certain individual people. Like, for instance, Roman emperors or Asian rulers would have been considered or worshipped as gods. 
Along with that, people would worship idols, which represented various aspects of nature, right? There were gods or goddesses that represented the sun and the moon and the planets and the rain and the earth and the wind and the mountains and the oceans and the animals and so on. There was like a god for everything. And so, kind of considering all that, when they say the problem with pagan thinking, we'll just kind of sum up paganism in the way that Paul did. He talked about, uh, and I'll word it like this, paganism is worshiping created things or worshiping creation rather than the creator. Worshiping created things or worshiping creation rather than the creator. See, creation was meant to point to God. That's where he starts out in this. like Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And Paul says, look, no, no one can say, I didn't know there was a God. Like, everyone is without excuse because God has revealed himself in creation. The creator created. And that creation is evidence of his existence. And Paul basically says it's pretty obvious and clear. Nature itself is evidence of God and leaves us all without excuse for not acknowledging him. Ignoring or rejecting that truth is in itself enough for us to be judged guilty, he says. And look, even the person who doesn't believe in God or his standard of righteousness, they will still be subject to that. Right? Example, if you don't believe in gravity, you're still subject to it. Right? When you step off the edge of a cliff, you're going to experience it. Painfully. Painfully. Well, in some ways, that's what it's like with people and God. They don't want to acknowledge Him, but it doesn't matter that you don't believe in Him. It doesn't matter that you object or that you disagree. It doesn't matter if you think something He says is unfair. You're still subject to God's righteousness and His righteous standards. Your salvation is dependent upon meeting those. And everyone is without excuse because God has shown Himself to all of us since the beginning of creation. And yet, Paul says, people turned away. People turned away. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul's saying, look, from the beginning, people knew God. They recognized him as a creator, but along the way, they began to ignore and reject him. They didn't honor him. They didn't give him thanks. Began worshiping creation itself rather than the creator. Now, Paul mentions these kinds of images that people created for themselves. And uh, notice the order that he lists them in. He says, first of all, that they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images representing mortal man, right, humans. Now, when you track in the creation story, it's obvious that we, as people, were intended to be the pinnacle of God's creation. But even as the high point of creation, we are nothing compared with the Creator Himself. 
And yet some people would and do worship images of men or women as God. Some people elevate individuals to God-like status and worship them. So instead of worshiping the immortal God, they chose to worship other people. And that might seem really off base, but it only gets worse from there because the next thing he says is, uh, or birds. Right? Seems like a step down from people, but then again, birds fly, right? So they soar. That's kind of majestic. Maybe the birds are God. Or animals. I mean, they got four legs instead of two, so that must mean they're God. Or creeping things. Like really creeping things? Like snakes and rats and bugs? God is a bug? I think what Paul's showing here is how ridiculous things get when people start worshiping created things instead of the Creator. Right? A little bit tongue-in-cheek. Oh, they worship men and birds and animals and even creeping things. It's like, come on. People made images of these created things, and they started to worship those man-made images. Now, now, just kind of a point that I wanted to bring up, a key point that I wanted to bring up here is, look, nothing created can possibly be greater than its creator. Right? Nothing created can possibly be greater than its creator. I mean, they made images representing these so-called gods and worshipped these images. How can these images possibly be something greater than themselves? They made them with their own hands. <laughs> Nothing created can possibly be greater than its creator. And Paul says, yet instead of honoring God and giving thanks, people have become vain and aimless and futile in their thinking. And that mentality, he says, that comes from an ungodly place. Right? People who do this have darkened hearts. Paul says, they claim to be wise, but they are fools. And so then he begins to talk about how this kind of pagan way of thinking plays out. Verse 24, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped, the serve, and, worshipped and served the Creator. <sighs> Say that again. And worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Look, when, there, when there's no acknowledgement of God and when created things become the object of our worship, then there's no real authority, is there? There's no rules. There's no standards or morals for living. I mean, who determines what's right and wrong when your so-called God is a bird? Who determines what's right and wrong when your God is an animal or a bug? Who determines what's right and wrong when you worship the sun or the moon or the stars? This is where it leads, Paul says. Lustful living, impure hearts, the dishonoring of physical bodies. And then in verse 26, he says, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Right? Like, they didn't want to acknowledge God. So, he let them run with it. He let it play out. He gave them over to their unrestricted lust and passions. 
Then Paul continues his argument by giving an example of what, that shows like what kind of thinking this all leads to. And fair warning, what Paul writes next is not at all going to be very popular or acceptable in our culture. The next few verses are, are ones that maybe we'd uh, sometimes prefer to skip over because it connects to a pretty volatile issue these days. It has to do with gender identity and homosexuality. Now Wayne Grudem, who I mentioned earlier, he calls this topic a teaching many believers increasingly prefer to forget. Right? We don't want to deal with it. But as we work through the text, remember that this is more than just a letter from Paul to some church in ancient Rome. This is God's word for us. So we can't shy away from a topic or teaching just because it's uncomfortable or countercultural. Anyway, here's what Paul writes in verse 26, starting in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. There's a phrase that Paul uses in these verses, uh, end of verse 26, that is translated, those which are contrary to nature. It more literally is translated, that which is unnatural. And there's a Greek phrase there, it's like ten parafusin. And I, I point that out because this is a standard expression, not just in Scripture, but in Greek ethical literature at the time of Paul for homosexual behavior. Right? So for those who would want to say, that's not what Paul's talking about here, yes it is. Okay? Just to be clear. He uses the example of homosexuality as a behavior that is an extreme outworking of what happens when God's intended design for creation is ignored. Right? The standards of righteousness are ignored. The way that God created things, the way in which we're designed, is that man and woman, male and female, were made for one another. We read that in the accounts of creation. We read about that throughout Scripture. And Paul's saying, look, as obvious as that should be, even that gets ignored when there's no standard for righteousness. Again, this is not a popular statement in the culture or climate of today. I realize that. With gender identity issues kind of on the forefront of culture and a society which is pressing in on people to really support that thinking and conform to it, these words are kind of fighting words. But here's Paul's point. When we ignore God, there are no righteous standards. When there are no righteous standards, anything goes. Right? When we ignore God, there are no righteous standards, and when there are no righteous standards, anything goes. Like Operating outside God's design and plan is foolishness, he says. But this is the kind of thing that paganistic thinking, a refusal to acknowledge God in his ways, or worshiping, or, or, or obeying creation rather than the creator, this is what it leads to, he says. Now, I want to point out that while Paul brings up homosexuality here as an example of the outworking of this, maybe an extreme example, 
Um, he spends a bit of time on that, but it's not the only thing he's bringing up. Right? He goes on to give over 20 other examples of where ignoring God leads to sinful behavior. Verses 28 through 31. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, and they is referring back to those who are ungodly and unrighteous, not specifically uh, homosexuality. But and since they, the unrighteous and ungodly, did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And he said, all of this, all of this is where paganistic thinking leads. When we're willing to worship creation rather than the Creator, when we're willing to ignore God, then there's no righteous standards. When there are no righteous standards, anything goes. And left to our own determination of what should be right and wrong, we're going to miss the mark of what God's standard is. Like we end up kind of inventing or creating some sort of sliding scale. And we'll talk about that next week because next week we look at the problem with moralism. Right? Picking and choosing where that line gets drawn in the sand. But the reality is, is we don't come close. In fact, when this paganistic thinking plays out, uh, it brings out the worst in us. Right? If I could sum up the problem with pagan thinking, it, it would be this, kind of a summary. Pagan thinking, in other words, worshiping the creation versus the creator, it does not and cannot lead to righteousness. It actually brings out the worst side of our nature, Paul argues, and so deserves God's wrath. Right? Pagan thinking does not lead to righteousness. It actually brings out the worst side of our nature and so deserves God's wrath. It falls so far short of God's righteous standard, Paul says. It triggers lust upon lust, leads to greater and greater depravity, it leads us deeper and deeper into sin, and here's the final word of this chapter, um, sin becomes more and more overt. Right? Paul ends this with the, these words in verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree and that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Right? Paul says people don't just do these ungodly acts, but they celebrate and promote them. Like, look, there are some people who have secret sins. Maybe we all have some. Maybe we're all hiding some. We're, there are people who engage in a very sinful behavior, but they keep it covered up because they know it's wrong. They don't want anyone to know. But then there's another level when those who do those same things take it even further. They not only practice them, but 
like overtly, but they give their wholehearted consent for others to engage in them. They become an ally to sinful behavior and enthusiastically encourage and give approval for those same sinful behaviors. And I think it's important to see Paul addresses both camps of people here. Those who do these things and those who approve of them. Paul warns us against both. But again, I want to remind us, this is God's Word. God's Word warns us against both. And as Christians, he says, look, we know the end result of all sin. It's death. It's death. The wages of sin is death. But that comes later in Romans. Look, with the flow of society and the change of beliefs that is constantly taking place around us, we can easily find ourselves not wanting to stand out or make waves with countercultural beliefs, right? Back to that quote at the beginning. And so, maybe instead of upholding righteous standards of God, we give approval to the very things that he says are wrong. And by condoning them or approving others who engage in them, we actually are contributing to the spread of unrighteousness. Some even do that in the name of Jesus. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. So what are we supposed to take away from all this? Because this is heavy, right? This is a lot. What do we take away from this? Here's what I'd like to suggest. First of all, I want to take us to Ephesians 4, verses 14 and 15. Out of Romans to Ephesians, another letter that Paul wrote. Here's what he had to say. He wants us to, verse 14, no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every kind of, or every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Yeah, I'm going to read that again, because that is a powerful, powerful passage. He wants us to no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So as we close this morning, what I want to remind us is that phrase in there that we've heard and said quite often is so important. We are called to speak the truth in love. We are called to speak the truth in love. And here's kind of the key idea, key takeaway that I'd like to suggest. Regardless of what the issue is, be sure you are holding to the truth and be sure you're living it out in love. Right? Regardless of what the issue is, be sure you're holding to the truth and be sure you're living it out in love. Now practically, for some of you, the tough challenge is to love a whole lot better. Right? Some of you, and I would guess maybe a majority in this church, would strongly uh, disagree with a, a homosexual lifestyle or the whole LGBTQ plus movement. You may even be very vocal against it. You might 
speak out and fight against it. You hold firmly to the truth. And I'm just using this as an example again, like Paul did. You may hold firmly to the truth. And I want to encourage you with this. Be sure you remember there's a person behind every story. Right? Some of us have siblings or kids or friends or other relatives who are wrestling through identity issues. And in some cases, people that we know and love, maybe even people who are very close to us, have landed in a place or chosen a lifestyle that is contrary to Scripture or that we flat out disagree with. And again, whether it's this issue or something else, but in your fight to uphold the truth, you need to be sure you are loving well. Your goal is not to win an argument about a cause or a moral value. It's to help them come to know Jesus and follow him. And you probably won't ever see that happen unless you love well. Okay, so for some, the challenge is to love a whole lot better. But for others, the challenge is to be more truthful. Right, to be more truthful. Some just ignore the Scriptures and what it has to say about the issues. You don't want to offend anyone. You don't want to believe that God will actually judge anyone for what He calls sin and unrighteousness. After all, God is a God of love, right? But He's also a God of truth. God is a God of truth. I don't think He gave us all this Scripture so we'd be thrown off and confused by who He is or what He is about. His word is true, right? He is who he says he is. So make sure you hold to the truth. Don't cling to some empty, misguided argument about why the Bible doesn't really mean what it says. Be sure you aren't bending Scripture to say what you want it to or to what fits with society's new viewpoints. That's exactly what Paul had in mind when he said not to be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine. If you do that, you're deceiving yourself and you're creating a God of your own design. You're just making God in the image you want him to be. You've got to hold on to the truth. Be sure that you aren't just picking and choosing who you'll speak God's truth to either. Right? Like, look, I, I get it. A hard passage about sexuality, maybe it's fine to talk about that or hear about that on Sunday morning or in a small group, or with your close Christian friends. But then you throw that aside, or throw it out the window, brush it aside when you're interacting at work, or with your non-Christian friends and family. Like, then you're not holding to the truth. You're being very wishy-washy, wavering back and forth. Look, I think it's important we remember Paul addressed two camps of people, those who do ungodly things and those who prove of them. God's word warns us against both. And again, in all of these areas. As Christians, we know better. Like we should, we have God's word. We know God's standard for righteousness and we have to hold to the truth. So my encouragement and my prayer for us this morning is that regardless of what the issue is, be sure you're holding to the truth and be sure you're living it out in love. 
I want to pray for us, and then Scott's going to close us with a few uh, announcements this morning. Father God, we know that sometimes your word takes us to places and topics that are a little squirmy. And sometimes it's a struggle as we wrestle through them. But we pray this morning that as we hear your word, as we hear your truth, that we would allow it to penetrate. Penetrate our hearts, penetrate our minds. But at the same time, Father, we pray that you would give us the ability to both speak truth and to love. And God, for those who are just clinging strongly to truth but are lacking in love, we pray that you would stir up something greater. We pray that you would stir up a love for people, a desire for them to know you, and a heart which reflects you. We're not asking for you to help us forget the truth, but to love when there is clash and conflict. And God, for those who are uh, really good at the love, but struggling to hold to your truth, we pray for you to open our eyes and hearts, to give us courage, to give us strength, to stick by what your word has to say. We know it's going to lead to difficulties and clash and conflict. But it is, not un, it is not loving in any way to withhold the truth, to not speak truth. And since we're already good at the love, just help us to be courageous, to speak truth where it's needed, and to cling to that. We know that Jesus as the standard of righteousness was also the perfect example of speaking the truth in love. He spoke truth, and so many, so many rejected him, so many refused him. But even in the face of that, he did it in love. His motivation was love, his great love for us, and his great love for you. Help us to be like that. And God, uh, wherever the the place that our heart is this morning, whichever thing we need most, we pray you would work on that in us so that we can really reflect him in our world, especially in areas that are volatile and topics that are touchy. Give us your insight, give us your truth, and give us your heart of love. In the name of Christ, we pray these things. Thanks for listening to the podcast of the Portico Church in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. You can find out more about our church at porticocommunity.com.